Lori Lightfoot looks like the saddest frog in that picture. Someone said goldfish. <laughs> Red goldfish. The people are not feeling the Steve Harvey suits. They're not feeling the sensible shoes anymore. Some hard shoes in there. Like, I never really felt bad, but Gene, when he's making the thing, he goes, I'm going to find, like, I don't want to do a Gene impersonation because every time I do it, it sounds like Robin Leach. But uh, <laughs> I can't, I can't do Gene without sounding like Robin Leach. But um, he goes, I'm going to find the saddest picture of Lori Lightfoot. Mm-hmm. The original title was Lori Lightfoot gets on the good foot out of Chicago. That was too long. Wow. <laughs> no? Are you glad we went with this one? I'm glad we went with this one. And it, re- it refers to her shoes, which is good. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. So glad to have you guys here with us tonight for what should be a very interesting conversation about not just the current ousting of Mayor Lori Lightfoot, but a deeper discussion about Chicago machine politics, racial coalition politics, and its history. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit like, subscribe, and don't forget to ring that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. That simple passive gesture goes a long way in the support of independent left media. There will be no champagne room tonight as we'll be doing our monthly movie night tomorrow and possibly a quick, maybe patron-only stream, maybe just normal stream, uh, in honor of De La Soul's music being available on all streaming platforms. For those of you that are subscribers and patrons, thank you for your continued support. That is the fuel in the engine of the TIR machine. Uh, if you'd like to wear your support, then let the people know with TIR merch. So would you like to tell us a little bit about the merchandise? Oh man, I was drinking some water. Oh, you know, forget it. Forget it. Oh, no, that's no. No, let's, let's talk about the merch. Yeah, no, no, no. You're wearing three layers today let's let's talk about wearing some clothes exactly so we literally got you covered we got hoodies different colors unbelievable 
matching all of your footwear, all of your sensible footwear. Like Tim's. Like Tim's or whatever Lori Lightfoot wears. <laughs> She's a trendsetter. Style icon, Lori Lightfoot. Lori Lightfoot wears Nike ACGs. <laughs> I was gonna say Skechers. She's <laughs> <laughs> like an ACG kind of gal, you know. You got a little bit of money, you pay the extra, you know, seventy-five dollars for a shoe that is comforting while you hike in the mean streets of uh, Chicago. There you go. You get a little ankle pessimism going, <laughs> along with your mouse pad, while you pack it up to leave the mayor's. Packing up all your stuff, <laughs> and off you go. <laughs> Closing time. Do you think? <laughs> do you think you're playing that for Lori's life? <laughs> Every new new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. That's what they said. <laughs> oh, Lori. Well, also, if you'd like access to Champagne Rooms, past and present, become a patron. It's as simple as going to patreon.com slash Presents, And for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year, it can all be yours. And you can be a part of the live audience for the Mau Mau Hour. And you can join us for movie night, which should be a fun experience as I will have people in my house for movie night which I've never done before, and I don't know how exactly we're going to set it up, but we'll definitely figure it out. So uh, that should also be fun. Speaking of movie night, let's bring in the man that picked the movie. He is my homie, my dog, my co-host, the man of the Mount Mount Hour, who was just uh, doing a show with FD Signifier. It's going to be coming out soon. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Peace and greetings, M2 Sun. Hello. Are you excited? How are your shoes? Yes, yes, y'all. Are you? Okay, here's a question that I want to know. So, you guys all know that I always wear pants. I don't wear sweatpants, I don't wear casual. I'm always in jeans. Maybe if it's really hot shorts. But do you guys wear shoes? Currently, I'm wearing jogging shorts and I'm barefoot. <laughs> jogging shorts? I didn't see you, that. You didn't coming. think that Pascal would be in jogging shorts? No. Thought he had some starchy khaki shorts. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that make you look round. <laughs> All tapering. Yeah. Some boat shoes. Tucson's wearing a house coat right now. I've got curlers in her hair. Uh, <laughs> house coat, yes. <laughs> That's why she never when we do when we do video calls, always turns off the um camera. So you can't see the house coat. Got to. Got to. Tucson looks like mama from Mama's family when you call. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Wow. Why did you remember Mama's family? Because <laughs> of the house coat. Mama's from Mama's family or from That's My Mama? <laughs> from Mama's family. Not even That's mm. My Mama. 
let's, culturally let's... appropriated the, the, mama's, the uh, mama's family. Mama's family. Yes. With them. Yeah. Not Carol Burnett. What was her name? Lawrence, Vicky, Lawrence. Vicky Lawrence. Yes. Vicky Lawrence. Yes. You got a Vicky house Lawrence code. house coat on right now. The worst. The Yelling worst. at kids that ain't even his. That ain't even his. <laughs> and if you want to know, fashion slander to Lori Lightfoot tonight, and maybe okay. Pascal, who's oh, wearing word. jogging shorts and uh, Gucci slides. They're gray jogging shorts. Okay, can I ask you guys a question before we go start the show? And I know people are going to get pissed off because they, you know, why do you guys take so long? Because I can, goddammit. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, when did people start calling flip flop slides? I think it's a West Coast thing, man, because don't, they don't do that. In- I've never heard, I haven't heard that until I saw, I saw it in a movie. I was like, slides what is a slide what does that mean like i you think slide slides are particularly they're not the ones they're not the thongs they're the ones that go with yeah. the flap over the foot but isn't it still flip-flops no hey, flip-flops i live in miami you got a lot of haitians all year is pontoof 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 which is pontoof. crazy which is haitian creole for sandals bro so they don't say sapats sapat pontoof you know depends on where you feel the okay. thongs that was that was a thing like get your before it was draws it was like thongs where the the ones your toes went in right yeah and that was like a thing too and is it thongs or flip-flops and, and i remember when uh fila remember when fila had the fila like young people say slides now mm-hmm. fila flip-flops and they had then the adidas ones and that was like actual but do you remember that? That that would be part of people's outfit in <laughs> like the mid to late nineties. No. It was like you had to have the you know windbreaker sweatsuit that matched the the flip flop. I never understood why cats would wear the, the sandals, flip flops, or whatever, and socks. I'm like, why? Flip flops. That's yeah. Outcast. Flip flops and socks. Remember Outcast in the first record in the it's video true. for Players Ball. Work. Yeah. They're wearing, they're wearing, that's what they say, socks. Yeah. Best of both worlds, I guess. You don't, you're not supposed to wear flip-flops and socks. I will wear, if you come to my house, you will see me in some sort of flip-flop and sock answering the door. Very West Coast, very West that Coast. That is very West Coast. Because first of all, please don't walk on my beautifully mopped floor with your dirty ass shoes. Mm. And then, you know, this is an Asian house. Take your shoes off. And uh, I will have on. I got Crocs. They have the cheap Crocs at the at the Mexican Walmart. You have Crocs? I have some. They're like Walmart? bootleg Crocs. Oh my gosh. My mom. <laughs> My mom bought some Crocs recently. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> she rock the socks in the Crocs? No, she's not rocking socks in the Crocs. She's just wearing the Crocs. She's from Tropical, Florida. That's good. Tucson, so when you come here to visit, I will answer the door with uh, flip-flops and socks. Unless you come in the summer. And the toes out. Dude. You just really like flirting with 
all the dad things. Like you skate around it. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. I'm just gonna say that. I'm a dad. You I'm a dad. dad. Right? There's when you are 40 with an infant, you've thrown cool out the window. Yes. Like when I first had kids, I was young. I was like a young dad. Now I'm like an old man with a little like my my daughter calls me grandpa dad because I'm just this old grandpa dad. dad. Man, I know guys way older than you that have kids, young kids. Grandpa dad. Weird. Right? Grandpa dad. Grandpa dad. I'm not a grandpa, but she just thinks it's funny because I'm old. It's coming. But let's. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Patience. <laughs> That's all I need the phone to ring with a guess what. Uh, oh, how things have changed in just one tumultuous term for the soon-to-be mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. The first gay black woman to be elected in that position will not have the chance to be reelected. Lightfoot, a Democrat who ran on police reform in a city during a moment when uh, overzealous nature of police brutality and murder was on the minds of many in major metropolitan areas. For a city like Chicago, the high-profile police murder of Laquan McDonald required a mayoral candidate that could reign in the Chicago Police Department and keep crime at a minimum. Lightfoot did neither. From a recent article in The New Yorker, the nonpartisan race attracted national attention because it offered the rarest of political tableau, an incumbent mayor struggling for survival after a commanding election victory for years, victory four years ago in a platform of political and police reform, Lightfoot was forced to govern through crises that would break any executive, a deadly pandemic, and a long summer of social unrest. Homicide rates spiked in Chicago as residents overwhelmingly began to worry about crime more than any other pressing issue. And Lightfoot, a former prosecutor who had never held elected office before, stumbled repeatedly as she strained to hold together the coalitions that had made her mayor in the first place. Lightfoot alienated just about every ideological faction in Chicago. The city's second black mayor, Lightfoot Battle Johnson, a proud progressive for support in Chicago's pivotal African-American neighborhoods. Left-leaning organizations and local leaders viewed Lightfoot with increasing skepticism, portraying her as a pro-police neoliberal like her predecessor, Rahm Emanuel. She managed to feud almost equally with two influential unions that hold starkly different political views, the Chicago Teachers Union, which is left-wing and backed by Johnson, and the city's police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, which is headed by a proud Donald Trump supporter. Was Lightfoot time was Lightfoot's time in office marred with difficulties that were beyond her control, or was her time as the mayor of Chicago one of incompetence? Was her gender and race a factor in a racial polarizing city like Chicago? To help us understand this, we brought in friend of show and friend in real life, guy that has actually helped me out on this show, so I could actually take a vacation, and. And I got to hang out with a few months ago in LA. Please welcome 
Chicago's own Kenzo Shibata. Good evening, gentlemen. What up, what up, man? Kenzo Shibata. How's it going, Pascal? Jason? Good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. And Jason and I got to hang out uh, not too long ago when I was out in uh, L.A. for winter break with my son. We got to hang out and have a couple Coca-Colas and talk about music and, and talk shit, and politics, <laughs> life. We did have a couple of Coca-Colas. Thank you for bringing that up because I, I think people think it's a joke. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't drink and I don't drink much at all. So it was just two of the nerdiest dudes ever you can imagine in downtown. LA. Yeah, and this was like New Year's weekend or so, and yeah. uh, the bartender's like, "I'm, I'm not even going to charge you guys." <laughs> yeah, just. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You see the dad stress in our eyes. Uh huh. Yeah, my son was sleeping at that point, and I'm like, I got to sneak downstairs and and have some adult time. In, in all fairness, Kenzo's son's a little older. We don't want you thinking he left an infant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did have a, a fun conversation. Um, we really were talking politics, and we we're talking Chicago politics as well. Yeah. Kenzo, for those that don't know, is part of the Chicago Teachers Union. You've been a teacher for 20, how many years? 21. Well, I started my teaching career in 2003, but then I took a long hiatus of about eight years working for the Chicago Teachers Union and then later for the State Federation, uh, the Illinois Federation of Teachers, which is the state federation over CTU. Uh, returned to the classroom about four years ago, um, just in time for our 2019 strike. And um, yeah, I was on the bargaining team for that, got to... Uh, didn't get to meet Lori Lightfoot herself, but got to meet her minions and um, yeah, awful people. <laughs> mm. But then, yeah, I'm, so, I'm teaching again. Not a fan of uh, Lori Lightfoot from her walking in the door in office has always yeah. had something to say. Um, you're back. Are you back on social media? Uh, well, okay. So interestingly enough, I went back on Twitter. And Elon deleted my account, like out of nowhere. Actually, like, well, I was locked out of my account out of nowhere. I was punching in my uh, password. And it kept saying it wasn't working. So I reported it as a problem to Twitter. Mm -hmm. And then that was just nuked. And then mm -hmm. I just, I made sure just to like kind of sit on it for a while, just to refresh to make sure that no one else would steal my name when it became available again. Mm -hmm. So I have it again. It just, I don't have any followers. I had 18,000 when it got merged. Well, I follow you. Aww. I do. I found you the other day. <laughs> I forget. I think I wanted you to be part of this uh, silly thing I'm doing on Twitter that gets my mind off all the depressing shit we talk about. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm doing a, a tournament called March Radness, and nice. it's uh, the tournament for 80s movie soundtrack tape deck supremacy. Okay. And uh, I'm, movies are battling each other. And this is a Twitter thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So oh, I have, I have an account now. It sounds like right up my alley. Yes. It, it's definitely somewhere to go to get your mind off things. Um, my my neighbor and good friend had a debate the other night with that guy, Haas. Mm. So it was a great place to go get, get, get our mind off a bunch of <laughs> 
I know Unless, just enough of no. I know just enough about Haas to know I don't want to know anything else about him. That, <laughs> that's all you need to know. <laughs> but back to to serious matters. What was Chicago like before Lori Lightfoot? Can you set the stage for how this woman comes to power? Because usually I feel like there's a story beforehand. We can't just talk about. Lori in a vacuum. I think there's a, a scene that needs to be set here. 2019 was like the most anti-machine, anti-incumbency um, uh, years that I had ever experienced in Chicago. So what that meant in 2019 is we elected um, about a dozen uh, socialists to city council. Um, that was a good thing. But then there wasn't like a at that point, any kind of um, like movement candidate running for mayor. So um, Lori Lightfoot was completely unknown. Um, I would say, you know, a big, you know, help for her, at least at that particular political moment was she ticked off all of the right um, boxes, you know, first black female gay mayor of Chicago. Um, and she had a pretty progressive platform. Uh, her education platform was there was very little daylight between hers and the Chicago teachers unions. And um, she was all about police accountability. She was supporting a very strict version of the police accountability law that was eventually passed. Um, a very watered down version was actually passed, but she supported the initial one. And so um, no one really supported her as far as like the left in Chicago, because she was a prosecutor and um, she worked, uh, she was a partner for mayor Brown, which is a, um, a corporate law firm. Um, you know, one of the bad people. And so no one wanted to just support her, but then when she eventually did win uh, the attitude I know within the teachers union was, well, well, let's try to work with her. You know, she, ran on a platform that's close to ours. Maybe she is moving left at least, you know, at that point we had no choice, but to at least kind of take her in good faith. And she immediately uh, screwed us uh, with refusing to negotiate a strong contract um, or n refusing to negotiate a, a, a contract that actually held to her own campaign promises. She promised raises. She promised a counselor, um, a social worker and a psychologist in every school building. Like I said, it was almost the exact same planks that the Chicago teachers union uh, was pushing um, any mayoral candidate to support. And um, well, she said, no, all of those things. And he had this general misunderstanding of how union negotiation should even go. Um, you know, I was on the union bargaining team. I'm a rank and file teacher. And so I didn't get to see she, I didn't get to see her at all in these negotiations. She didn't show up at all. Uh, Chicago is somewhat unique in that the mayor runs the schools. Uh, we don't have a separate entity and the mayor appoints our entire school board. And then the school board hires um, the people who bargain the contract on management side. So um, they kept reporting back to us like, you know, the mayor won't budge on this, that, and the other thing. And she forced us out on a long strike. Um, that we, you know, intentionally did not set out to do. We, we thought, you know, someone that was running on a platform that was the same as our demands, we weren't going to have to strike this time. And so she pushed us into a five-year contract 
Uh, we were able to hold to hold her to some of her promises. We, you know, are slowly phasing in um, those care workers in every school building. Um, you know, one of the things though that is ridiculous is the fact that we're phasing them in and not getting them outright is because of what the mayor's team um, was pushing for. Um, she also screwed us out of paying us for all the days we were out for strike. We we're out eleven days. Um, and typically, you know, you make up those days uh, as a service to the students and you get paid a wage because, you know, you should get paid for your labor. And um, she refused to have the student, the students to make up all the days and then also docked us that pay. Um, so, yeah, even on our first contract, you know, we got a, a little ding to our um, our paychecks, even though we, you know, we negotiated a raise. Uh, so everything she's done has been in bad faith. Uh, she even went so far as this is a supposed progressive was defending the Columbus statue. Um, even though there was, it would have been a very easy W for her, uh, with any progressives in the city was to support the taking down of the Columbus statue downtown, um, that, um, groups are, you know, asking to have taken down. Um, she stood up with the, you know, basically the police, um, who are big staunch uh, pro proponents of keeping the, the statue up. Um, this was, you know, famously where a young 18-year-old uh, protester had her teeth, front teeth all knocked out by police um, who were protecting the statue. Uh, so she, yeah, she, even like very easy wins she could have scored with Progressive, she just refused to, and that's why she lost. Jesus. Pascal, do you want to add something? You know, it's interesting. I remember when Lori Lightfoot was elected and one of the first people I talked to was uh, Cedric Johnson, who was teaching in Chicago at the time. And, he, he, you know, we were talking about how she was being uh, celebrated in certain segments of the left on purely identitarian grounds that, you know, yeah. first black woman, first, first gay, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, man, these people are so comical because she was disproportionately supported by districts in Chicago where police live. And this is what he told me when she got elected at first of all. I was like, are you serious? She was like, yeah, man. Cops really liked her because she was a prosecutor. She's connected to the big law firms. You know, the, the pro-growth, big corporate interests in Chicago all, you know, all connected to her and whatnot. And I was like, wow, it's that's really interesting. So, you know, I had been watching her political career. And, you know, at the time when, you know, my history of, of understanding Chicago politics comes from a lot from Bruce Dixon, who was my mentor, was from Chicago, and a lot of reading that I had done and understanding the importance of Chicago because it's in a state where it has a high number. Illinois has a high number of electoral votes, like twenty electoral votes, and if it was not for Chicago, it would be a red state. So pretty much, Chicago is very important to the Democratic Party, and it always has been. So what's really interesting to me is that the, the Chicago machine. Can you talk about how the Chicago machine? pretty much maintains a stronghold on municipal politics and why anyone who goes against the machine pretty much is, you know, you know, persona non grata in terms of achieving anything. Can you give us some history about what it, what it is, what it means and how it works? Well, the interesting thing was, um, so back in, um, the old mayor Daly's time, um, mayor, uh, Daly senior. Yeah. Mayor Daly senior, um, that was at the peak of the machine. Uh, the machine really uh, ran the city, and that was a political machine where it was all about just doling out jobs. Uh, if you ran the um, the, de Demo the local Democratic 
uh, committee, uh, you had more power than a lot of, you know, elected officials. Um, in fact, basically, if you uh, were the committeeman, um, which was a, an internal Democratic Party office in the city, um, you pretty much got to choose who the uh, alderman was because you're the one who has um, the organization in the streets who get votes for you. Um, and then you get to have the alderman pretty much, um, you know, you turn out your people for that alderman and then, you know, that's where jobs are doled out. And, you know, at, at the height of the machine's power, uh, that was, you know, the trash collectors, the people, the streets and sanitation people uh, through teachers and people who worked uh, downtown and the city hall, like any kind of city job, there was some sort of um, connection to the machine. So you were turning out votes, you were um, bundling cash for the Chicago machine. And then, you know, the mayor, um, all the power just went straight up to the mayor from there on out. And the city was just completely controlled by the Democratic Party, um, you know, to the point where the Democratic Party was determining, you know, Congress seats out in the suburbs, like Dan Rostenkowski famously uh, was the, the corrupt congressman for a uh, suburban district, um, but lived in the city um, because there was no residential requirement. Um, but he ran the machine, you know, he ran his section of the machine so well, he was able to get him, get him give himself that seat. And, um, you know, city politics all, all ran on that. And that was uh, through daily um, in his successor, though, unfortunately, was uh, kind of a Peter principled um, guy who worked his way up the machine because he was good at internal politics, but could not run the city. Famously, uh, Michael Belandic at the time that that mayor um, could not get the streets uh, cleaned during a blizzard. And that cost him the election. Very similarly to the situation where Lori Lightfoot snuck in, we had uh, the first female mayor, uh, Jane Byrne, uh, one term, another one-term mayor, uh, come in, and she um, was a disaster. Um, she did extremely poorly. She was one of those progressives who, as soon as she got into office, realized that you know being progressive was not going to get allow her to get anything done, and she didn't have a uh, a machine behind her. So she acquiesced to the machine very quickly. They never fully embraced her. But um, they uh, certainly rather had her than than a true progressive. Um, and then uh, this allowed for all of the uh, political or the um, sorry, the progressive and grassroots organizations, labor unions, um, all to come together. And that uh, led to the and I, I'm really simplifying this, uh, the election of Harold of Mayor Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago. Um, truly a um, a progressive grassroots candidate, um, although he, you know, he was a more traditional candidate who got some power through the machine when he was um, a congressman in Chicago in you know, for Illinois, uh, his district being in Chicago. Um, but it was truly it was a, a progressive grassroots coalition that got him elected. Uh, one that united the north and the south sides of the city, which were politically divided, um, you know, from the beginning of of the city, and um, all sorts of like very disparate interests. 
and unfortunately he died in office. Um, there was no, like, there was no plan B at that point. And that's how Mayor Daly's son snuck in. And what he did was he was able to tie together the remnants of the machine that still existed at that time with uh, business interests. He was like a, his, his thing was pinstripe patronage. So not all the money at that point and our jobs were kept in the city. Um, a lot of that money then started becoming privatized. So then consultants could uh, do some of the city services. And um, that led to a more of a neoliberal machine under, under Daly who held a tight vice grip on the city until he decided to retire. Um, Rahm Emanuel became his heir apparent. And at that point, the machine, the traditional street machine had uh, died out in all but a few districts. What Rahm was able to do was really um, through like shock and awe with his money and his political connections, you know, just through sheer, sheer force win um, overwhelmingly um, one election. And then, you know, he was actually, the, he was actually pushed into a runoff that, during his reelection by Chuy Garcia, um, who ran again this time. Um, but yeah, Rom didn't have the same kind of street level machine. And that led to in 2019, um, some open openings for progressives. And unfortunately some non-progressives who, uh, painted themselves as such. That's a really great encapsulation of a lot of years of history. <laughs> I think you you threw about fifty years in that like ten minute uh, rant. I love it. Uh, I do want to examine. Well, there's a reason why I had reached out to you. You know, it's, it's not just because we're friends. It's because you're extremely <laughs> knowledgeable on this stuff. And and uh, sometimes I get sad that you are not a, a louder voice in this space. Um, <clears throat> it, it needs a lot of clarity uh, that you're you're putting forth right now, but. I want to talk a little bit about Harold Washington. Um, and and I had some set aside some talking points slash questions. And um, the article, which you are not the biggest fan of, and that's fine. You know, I just wanted to find something that gives us a brief uh, overview on, on Lori Lightfoot's term. Um, it says that she was facing some obstacles that were beyond her, right? Um, a lot of first-term people usually are facing obstacles that are beyond them. And I sent us, uh, everybody participating in the show, a piece from 1986 by Manning Marable when he was writing about Harold Washington's uh, second run in office before he passes. Um, kind of comparing Harold Washington and a lot of these uh, first-term black mayors to leaders of countries that were finally free of European rule about how pretty much everything was stripped from uh, from these countries and they had to start from scratch and it was you know how difficult it was um, and giving context because we always look at especially African nations as these backwards places where these people just can't get right and a lot of these mayors you know and Cedric Johnson talks about this um, so brilliantly in his book uh, from revolutionaries to race leaders were walking in situations where these cities were just stripped of municipal budgets they were you know facing bankruptcy um, and they were left with this kind of surplus labor of a black population, you know, places like Detroit where manufacturing started to leave Gary, Indiana. I can't remember where some more early black mayors were. Um, you probably know. Where'd you say DC? 
Oh, yeah, DC. DC, New York in the, in the 80s, LA, uh, Atlanta. Um, of, of course, Gary. the results were, were different for everyone, right? Tom Bradley had a little better of a run until the, the early 90s than, you know, maybe some of the others. But that being said, was the cabinet bare for Lori Lightfoot when she walks in the door? Is she bombarded with COVID? Um, is the city so strapped that she doesn't know how to know how to handle the crime problem? Um, can you talk a little bit about how you think the handling of the shelter in place was um, during Lightfoot's time? Oh yeah, she uh, she was given a shitty hand as well. Um, the problem was anytime anyone you know, from the, the left or progressive side of, of Chicago tried to like reach out and help her. She just said, no, like she did not understand that. And this might not even be an ideological thing. It might just be a personality thing. I think she just won't work with anyone. She has to like be the boss and to run a city and run so many departments that do so many like very different things. Like no one could do all of that. Like the fact that the, the, um, mayor's office still run the schools. That's just ridiculous. Um, you know, the schools, the, the sewers actually, um, are run by a democratically appoint, um, a democratically elected board. Um, so, you know, we, we run, we elections for people who run the sewers, but not for the people who run the schools and the mayor is supposed to make all these decisions. And so she was left with a lot of responsibility and all of this, fell on, you know, all, all of these departments were under a lot of disrepair. However, you know, the CTU, one of the things we said was, well, we, you also were Lori Lightfoot, uh, ran on the idea of a, an elected school board and having, you know, the city, no, or the mayor's office no longer run the schools. And then she's like, no, I'm not going to support that idea anymore. And she even lobbied, you know, against us when we were going down there. So we're having a slowly phased in um, elected school board, but you know, that's just one example of like all these agencies saying, you know, we want to help, you know, the union saying, you know, we represent the workers who do this work. Let's work together. Um, so, you know, we can fix Rom's mess. And she just, you know, said, absolutely not. So every single problem she was left with, she's exacerbated you know, uh, police brutality got worse under her watch. And that was one of the things that she ran under and she stopped supporting this, um, CPAC, which was, you know, bad acronym for it, but it was a, uh, a more, uh, harder on the cops, uh, police accountability bill than what actually got passed than she supported. And that, you know, these problems haven't been abated at all. She's, um, just on every single thing, uh, when COVID relief, uh, when the federal government offered COVID relief, she actually refused some of it. Um, she fought the the teachers union every time we said, oh, maybe for two weeks we should, while there's a surge going on in COVID, um, go back to online teaching. Um, this is one way of us helping the city, you know, uh, mitigate this problem. She said no to that. And so, cause she had no ideas on her own and anyone who came up to her with a different idea, she would just immediately say no to. So a lot of unforced errors on her part, I think like she definitely 
you know, came to the city uh, with a raw deal, but just made it worse. So, oh, go ahead, Pascal. I wanted to ask you in, in terms of the, uh, you know, the kind of 800 pound gorilla in a room about Chicago politics to me is always the black political class because people always assume that, you know, black people, I mean, there's a large, very poor, you know, working poor, working class community in Chicago, but Chicago has a very old, established black political class that, you know, if you read Preston Smith's Racial Democracy in the Black Metropolis, Metropolis, he talks about how, you know, the black political class in Chicago, even during Jim Crow in the 40s and 50s, was negotiating to protect their class interests in terms of housing against poor and working class blacks in that city. So the question I want to ask is that how exactly do the mayors of Chicago, if you can, if you have the you know experience or knowledge base, how do they deal with and negotiate with the black political class in terms of assuring either support by the black voter turnout or in terms of doling out patronage, which we famously on this show call fat back and biscuits? How, how exactly does that end up working in terms of the real politique of Chicago politics? Well, this was something that uh, daily, um, both dailies were pretty savvy with um, and as well as Rahm Emanuel um, was really um Mayor Daly worked a lot with uh, like uh, ministers of of big churches, but also, you know, he made sure he had relationships with storefront church um, ministers as well. And they um, were very aware of, you know, they had to be able to um, give jobs out. And that was how they were able to keep um, their power in the neighborhoods, um, black, white neighborhoods, all, all, all neighborhoods at that point. Um, at one point they even had to, you know, keep track of all the different, what they called white ethnic neighborhoods because, um, Poles and, and Irish didn't, uh, always, uh, see themselves as being in the, having you guys are kind of like Boston. I think you need to admit that Kenzo, just admit that Chicago is kind of like Boston and that you guys have very specific racism where white (laughs) people hate white people. Um, I think that's a northeastern phenomenon. I think there's an urban ethnic phenomenon of the north. Where you, Kinzo's trying to act like you know he's not an aberration himself. <laughs> oh, wow! Ouch! But uh, we know in Chicago, you can see white people fight white people. You know, not not like it used to be, and I think part of that is the suburban because the different white ethnic groups moved to different suburbs. So maybe Uh, that's all happening out in the suburbs. But I think it was maybe under Harold Washington's term that the white people were like, you know what? We're all white here, guys. I mean, the the white coalition ran a Jewish guy, Bernie Epton, against Washington. Like That's how serious they were about, like, we're all white now, okay? (laughs) It's a double entendre, right? Like the the tagline for Bernie Epton's campaign was "Before it's too late," so they always <laughs> say "Vote Epton before it's too late." And 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 then it was a picture of you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Of I got I'm three followers on Japanese. <laughs> Your son will have three followers, and it'll be a mongrel. <laughs> <laughs> For those listening, Kinzo is uh, 
not white. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very well-spoken Asian man. <laughs> An asset to my community. <laughs> All right, let's get hey on point here. <laughs> Sorry, but um, Lightfoot, I she politically schizophrenic, um, politically just I don't think she was grounded in any. Um, analysis at all of how she had to approach the city. So she was very just scattershot. Um, one of the things that she she said that was really odd was during that whole um, uh, controversy with the, with the Christopher Columbus statue and the Italian groups were upset because they wanted to keep it. Um, this was when Lori Lightfoot said in a Zoom meeting that um, she had a bigger dick than the Italians. She had the biggest <laughs> dick in Chicago. And I remember seeing a meme of that and just thinking, okay, this is just like absurdist humor, isn't it? And then I did a Google search. I'm like, no, she actually said that to um, a head of the park districts about this controversy um, because she was saying that, you know, the Italians are, you know, you know, flexing their muscle and she's got a bigger dick than they do, apparently. She literally um, said like, that. <laughs> it was corroborated, um, and it is actually part of a lawsuit. The this park district's employee sued her, um, I believe, about this meeting. She berated him, where she was talking about how big her dick is, and it's bigger than the Italians. Wow! A black woman here with a <laughs> protruding clitoris that's talking about my penis. <laughs> Wow. So yeah, I like I don't know why she who she felt like the audience who who she felt she right. was serving by saying something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she has not yeah. embraced, I'd say, the black political class, the progressive political class, or even the right wing political class in any way. She or you know, right wing, you know, the, the fraternal order of police, she she the cops loved her and now they they hated her. Uh so she just seems to be all over the place. <laughs> That's that's... their big dick. (laughs) The comments. The comments in the chat. Someone said a real Italian just would have whipped it out. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the cannoli here? Is this the cannoli you're talking about? Hey. And it's spook over here. Says she's got a bigger hole than pots than me. My God. Hey, I got some black girl magic for you, honey. <laughs> All righty then. <laughs> Fictional Italian man in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, New York Italian man. New York it's Italian not even our man. Fault. She actually said this. <laughs> <laughs> like, Lori Lightfoot. Every time I saw her, she always looked like she wants to say, "I'm tired of these niggas." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every time I saw her, she looked like a, a character from Beetlejuice. I mean, that was not, <laughs> not right. Not right. She had, she definitely she looks very adorable. sad in the thumbnail. She looks very sad in the thumbnail. Well, she just lost her job. She got clean shit out. <sighs> so, so let me ask you a question. How exactly did she go so long without being just totally, totally just berated 
by activist groups in in, uh, in Chicago overall. Like, how does she? How is she able to even tread tread water for one term without people just absolutely? I mean, cause I remember when Rahm Emanuel was mayor, and the, the tension in the city was as transparent on mm-hmm. a regular basis from what you read in the news, and, and based on the level of seeming just kind of. Uh, incompetence or political lack of political savvy that Lightfoot has, how does she get a go go through the motions without having people just challenge her daily? Like, you know, what are you doing? She, well, she had a very, um, the media were very kind to her for a very long time. It wasn't until maybe the last year or so uh, where there are even our local media were just like, you need to actually like attend press conferences and answer our questions. Um, it was almost like they would give her an inch and she would take a mile every single time. Um, and so they were just throwing her softballs. In fact, actually the national media loved her MSNBC, the progressive media, um, they would have her on, you know, when we were negotiating a contract with her, uh, (laughs) MSNBC had her on just to say, you know, her entire talking points and didn't have anyone from the union on. So she, um, she had a lot of support there. She had a lot of support from, uh, what are called the lakefront liberals, um, you know, mainly white folks, liberals who, um, you know, they like her identity politics and, you know, they would run cover for her a lot. Uh, but definitely there was a lot of animosity between her and progressives and the left in, in Chicago, um, but, you know, because I think the media were so kind, they just didn't tell our side at all. Um, the protests, though, were not the same of the same size or magnitude than those under Rom. But I also didn't think part of that is because of COVID. We just we were tired um, and for a good year or so, people weren't really doing in-person protests. Um, so a lot of I mean, I think a lot of folks put that into electoral energy this time around and that that's how we got rid of her so how do you think she handled the uh what do we call it now george floyd summer um is that the, is that i don't want to say that that kind of seems like it's being a little belittling um what what, what do we call it the, the protests the joe george floyd protests how do you think she handled the george well floyd the first thing that the first unforced error she made was she was becoming kind of a, a social media star about her COVID response for some reason. It's just, I think her team just made really good memes and <laughs> um, are, you know, very viral memes uh, where it was like, the whole thing was like her with her arms crossed, wearing a mask, basically saying like, I'm tough and I'm going to make you social distance, even though she was really lax on the restrictions, even from the beginning. Um, she posted a meme, stay at home. This was right after the George Floyd protest kicked into high gear. Um, so that and was how bad, did it get, how bad did it get in your, in your hood? Was it like, you know, buildings getting destroyed or was it just a lot of just people in the streets? A lot of people in the streets mainly. Um, I mean, most of the action really is, is downtown um, in Chicago, like everyone converges downtown for the big protests. Um, protests don't often happen in the neighborhoods. Um, and a lot of that is because that's where all the municipal buildings are and city hall and any corporation that we might be marching on, um, is downtown. And then it's, it's 
accessible from tra public transportation from every region of the city. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of protests here. Um, she, you know, much like, you know, posting that meme of just stay home, um, mm -hmm. which I don't think had anything to do with the protest. It was just a, a staffer not knowing now was, you know, could not, couldn't read the room. Um, <laughs> she, uh, didn't, she didn't do anything, um, to help matters, uh, during some of the protests. In fact, she downtown, she had the, um, drawbridges raised basically locking ke or kettling protesters downtown um to be arrested so uh the police kind of ran things during these protests and um so that was you know a lot of the animus against her um started bubbling up because of that you know she was not speaking um and she was speaking more with her actions and policy um than anything else which was interesting, though, because the Democratic Party for a while, for a little while at least, the national one thought of her as like a darling. Because when they had one of the nights of the, the DNC, they had uh, George Floyd's family on um, to talk about um, not police brutality, but whatever the, you know, the violence, the hate, whatever, the very vague problem that the Democrats want to paint it as. And they had Lori Lightfoot on this panel, um, which, you know, that was that lit up chicago social media that night just like what the hell is she doing you know why are they putting her up on that stage and I'm just like yeah the democrats <laughs> and and i want to ask you another question you know we're, we're getting up on the hour and we can go a little longer because we're not going to do a champagne room tonight because it's movie night tomorrow nice. on tir uh crime and violence in the city is a big issue and we kind of skated around that this whole conversation. Shootings are happening. People are dying. Chicago's dangerous. Housing's a problem. That Harold Washington piece, you know, he was trying to uh, to erect new housing in his time in office with less of a budget. We talk about it on this show all the time. There's not a lot of federal money that states get. You know, I don't know how much money Illinois as a state gets because you know most of the population is in Chicago, decent sized state. You know, mm -hmm. not a lot of people live in Davenport. Not a lot of people live in Rockford. Um, but but seriously, I would love to hear your take on her handling and just crime in general in Chicago how it's handled and dealing with the police um and go off i mean i mean look we're go off it's not like i'm gonna cut you off in an hour go off <laughs> it's well one of the things about chicago that the media don't get right at all is the fact that because it is such a segregated city in every way economically racially uh crime is really it really is relegated to only portions of the city. So there are enough people in the city that are comfortable enough that um, they don't really care to do much about it. Like Lori Lightfoot lives in Logan Square, which is an extremely gentrified um, neighborhood, um, one that was pretty working class just maybe 15, 20 years ago. Uh, she sends her kid to a private school. Um, mm -hmm. So even though, you know, the kid might experience 
some um you know going to school with poor and working class kids if they if she went to the the public school um you know she's completely insulated from what's actually happening in uh in chicago and so uh i'm sorry in like you know the rest of the city um so and that's not just her it's like a lot of her supporters too um just uh they don't they aren't doing a good job um interestingly though if you look at uh i don't have a copy of the map right now but i did see one recently that showed how different neighborhoods went and neither paul vallis nor brandon johnson who are the um who are going to be in the runoff um captured many of the south side uh districts and neighborhoods so that's going to be an interesting battleground and that's you know part a portion of the city where you know unfortunately a lot of the crime happens there in the west side um you know just the places that have the least amount of money and so um that is going to be an interesting fight to watch because um brandon johnson is not for completely defunding the police but he is for police accountability um, in an, a real way, Paul Vallis was supported by the Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, he's gone on record as saying, you know, he's he's an anti-CRT guy, and I don't want to unpack that. Um, but you know what I'm saying? He's doing that kind of uh, messaging there of, you know, we can't have these kids learning black history. Um, so, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it is. And, you know, as far as defunding the police, that is something that is not clearly among uh, racial lines either. Um, you know, a lot of black folks and brown folks in Chicago don't want us to defund the police. You know, let, they let, see let me, more police as being um, safe, safety. Safe and a good amount of black people. If you have a high school education, you can be a six-figure employee as a police officer mm. and have a union job. Um, what is What is your take on that? What does police accountability mean post Laquan McDonald? Well, the Laquan McDonald situation was so interesting because there were so many layers of Chicago to it. Like the parking, the Burger King where he was murdered uh, was also a scene where a um, alderman uh, allegedly, I will say allegedly Ed Burke was shaking down that Burger King who wanted they wanted to expand their parking lot and he was shaking them down for political uh, contributions allegedly um, to make, to get that done the exact same place where Laquan McDonald was murdered. And, you know, he was murdered by the police. Uh, you know, they police officer pretty much got away with it. You know, no substantial punishment at all. And uh, mayor Rahm Emanuel, because he wanted to be reelected, had the state's attorney, hide the tape essentially from the media until after he was getting uh, reelected. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just the police that are involved in police corruption in the city too. So it's, it's accountability on multiple levels that we need. And um, you know, right now the police have an, a tremendous amount of power in the city and, you know, the, the head of the police union being, a, you know, seen holding up QAnon posters at rallies. Um, you know, that's, that's another layer of, of insanity that we have to these politics now is that, you know, there is a far right wing in the city, um, that do support the police. Um, 
wholeheartedly and um, they will, you know, in substantial ways support our, our police officers. Is it just because of the fear of violence? I mean, you know, people love bringing out statistics of Chicago gun violence. Uh, Spike Lee did uh, one of one of Tucson's favorite movies, Chirac. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal didn't even laugh. He was like, fuck that movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, is, is, that, is that kind of the perfect propaganda? Would you say something like Chirac for this fear and this this feeling of need for a larger police force i mean it, granted there is real deal violence in chicago mm-hmm. well i think there's fear i mean like i guess these things are not unrelated but fear of um white neighborhoods becoming not white um for sure like if you look at the city of chicago you could fold it in half and the all white neighborhoods on the far northwest and far southwest side, mm-hmm. um, they, they they touch each other. If you fold it a map map in half, it's almost like, you know, the there's this because we have a residency requirement for our municipal workers, including including cops, firefighters, and teachers. There's these pockets of the city where all the police officers live. Um, that are so close to the suburbs that they, you know, they shop in the suburbs, they share services with the suburbs, but um, they have to live within the city limits. Um, keeping those neighborhoods very white um, is also a big fear um, or is a big, you know, push that I think these folks have um, because, you know, even though gentrification is happening everywhere, if you live in the one of some of these gentrifying areas that are more in, you know, the central parts of the city, you, um, you have to have neighbors that don't look like you and um, the police want to make sure. And, you know, the people that are closest to them that um, they have neighbors that look just like them. Pascal. Well, how does this actually translate in terms of the, the day-to-day life in terms of the, the racial politics of Chicago? Cause one of the things you always hear about, it's like, you know, Chicago is a segregated city. It's so racially hostile, so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. And I've known, even just reading that uh, that article that Jason shared of, shared with us about how Washington, about the reaction the Chicago police had when Washington was being elected as mayor, they were basically saying, like, you know, you know, pretty much like, you know, the baboons are taking over the streets kind of thing. It was a like level of racial hostility. Mr. Baboon. Is, yeah, and uh, uh, you know, I, I remember visiting Chicago one time in the '90s, and I was like, "Man, this town! Number one, it's cold as hell, and number two, it's really <laughs> physically, physically segregated." And uh, how does that influence the political viability of these two candidates? When we have uh, Valles or Valles, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Valles. the guy who, yeah, Valles, who's running what seems to be a very overtly reactionary kind of you know you know mm-hmm. racial dog whistle type campaign and you have yeah. the other candidate i believe his name is johnson who was kind of like a progressive kind of left of uh left of uh of uh of lloyd lightfoot how does that translate in terms of the way they're perceived in in the uh body politic you know it's going to be really interesting to see because neither of them really captured um the south side neighborhoods um Paul Vallis is he's someone that at one point did have a lot of respect in the city because he was a, you know, he's close to mayor daily. 
Um, it does, did seem like he had, um, that, you know, racist dog whistle campaign this time around, um, which was, is not really his MO. Um, and, you know, Brandon teacher, um, but also one of the things that the media are like wanting to paint him as is either being, you know, too far left or like too, um, too aligned with the unions. That's one of the things that's been a real double standard with the media here, at least is that no one has, none of the, no one in the media have been questioning the fraternal order of police's ties to Vallis or the support of Vallis. But, you know, Brandon keeps being, Brandon Johnson keeps getting asked, like, how, how do you differ at all from the views of the Chicago teachers union? And, you know, he, he answers it perfectly. He says, you know, I also support strong public schools and strong, you know, neighborhoods for all. Um, and you know, it's like the media really are painting the unions as a public interest, whereas, um, the police or the business community, not so much. Um, so as far as this outcome for this election, I'm not sure how it's going to play out. You know, I I honestly, I have to plead a bit of ignorance here. Really? I wanted to know who to put my money on. Damn. dollars burning a hole in my pocket but there are just vacuums like there are whole neighborhoods in the city that didn't support either of them so it's really Mm -hmm. going to be about i mean a lot of it's going to be about ground game right now i hope more about ground game than media because vallis has you know a lot of money on his side um we saw that didn't work in la that's true Um, that that wasn't just money that was also like establishment. I've been in Los Angeles for decades, you know, giving money to you brown people guy that mm-hmm. beat or that lost to Karen Bass. So that, that's something to keep in mind. I, I think ground game means something. I'm sorry for cutting you off, Tucson. Uh, thank you. Um, Brandon Johnson was virtually unknown just a little while ago. Mm-hmm. That shows a lot of promise, doesn't it? I think so. I think so for sure. He was definitely unknown at the very beginning. He uh, was just a few years ago, a school teacher. I actually worked with him at the Chicago teachers union. He was an organizer. Um, Yeah. Well, I was uh, working in the communications department. Um, Wow. It just kind of dawned on me that I may have worked with the next mayor of Chicago. Um, (laughs) Sends his kids to public schools. um, And then he ran um, for County commissioner, uh, one kind of narrowly, um, that was a lot of, uh, late nights and like just really hitting the ground and, you know, a lot of ground game there. Um, he, he became a County commissioner. Um, from there he raised his profile and then, um, all of the, the unions pretty much, at least all of the, um, service unions in the city, um, supported him, um, sent out folks for him, um, the progressive alderman and the the socialist alderman also um, they supported him. Uh, they, you know, knocked on doors, not just for their own candidate for alderman, but also for Johnson. Um, so he's got this, this kind of, um, I don't want to say scrappy, but just like all in um, every progressive who wants to see a better city um, come together and support. So um yeah, this is going to be an interesting thing to watch because for Johnson's side, you know, we're going to have to just just build the ground troops for the most part because the money is not going to – money's there, but it's the kind of money that Vallis can raise is probably not. 
Um, you know, one thing that was a very big boon to Johnson's campaign was that the American Federation of Teachers kicked in a million dollars. Um, our, you know, national parent union. Um, that's, you know, that, that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, but you know, Vallis, the, the business interests in the city know that they have a big ally in him. Um, are we waiting for the other shoe to drop with Chewy Garcia? Who he's going to back? Uh, it would be, I mean, Chewy did support some really awful, almost right-wing candidates for aldermen. Any, any alderman that didn't support him, he didn't support. So like Rosano Rodriguez, who's this amazing socialist alderwoman alder um, in the 33rd Ward, Chewy supported her machine right-wing supported opponent. Um, so he's already drawing some ire from the progressives in the city. And so I don't know how much stock, I mean, I guess in, you know, in, in the fourth district congressional district, he, he had some stock if he threw his support one way or the other, but it would almost be just the end of him if he were to, or just him going at full, like Luis Gutierrez, if he were to support Vallis, I guess mm -hmm. that's a possibility too. Mm. You want to add something, Pascal? No, I mean, I think it's this has been a very, very good conversation with Kenzo, demonstrating the depth of understanding he has of Chicago politics, historically and present. And we're definitely going to be watching for this runoff, which is April, early April, as a matter of fact. Early April, yeah. Which would be great because our first election is always literally like the coldest day in Chicago. It's the end, last day of February or the last week of February. So we have, we only got 33% turnout. Like turnout was abysmal. So that's also going to be an interesting thing to watch is if on April 4th, we're able to turn out more um, than we were in February. What date is the fourth Tucson? Do you have a calendar? In front of you? Uh, yeah, let me, let me have a look. It's King Assassination. It's a Tuesday. It's King Assassination Day. That's what you call it. We got to find a better name. Mm -hmm. He was assassinated. Yeah, but it just sounds just like George Floyd summer. It just sounds like Hot Girl Summer, and that's just doesn't <laughs> oh, sound good. Hot girl so summer. King Assassination Day sounds like you're supposed to have a barbecue, and that doesn't sound right. <laughs> we, gotta, oh, wow. we have to call it something more, you know, somber. Non-cookout MLK Day. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, w I watched, speaking of MLK, I rewatched um, when Cuba and them were here. I was watching the Boondocks and I showed Cuba's wife the Boondocks, which blew her mind. She was just like, <laughs> Where has this show been my whole life? Right. <laughs> and we're sitting there watching, watching the Boondocks and we watched the Martin Luther King episode. And then everybody left and I watched it again. And I was like, you know, I don't know if this is part of the joke. And the only way we can know is if we ever get, uh, what's his name again? Aaron. Aaron Magruder. Aaron Magruder. Because I would love to know. And if it is, this man is a genius. But his MLK is the most pull up your pants <laughs> MF yep. Yep. ever. And that whole show is about this alternate world where MLK just racially scolds people. Yeah. Awesome. There's you know, a lot of respectability politics in the Boondocks. That that whole episode. 
And I just want to know if that's the joke that none of us get. Because at the end of that episode, if you remember, the world changes. Because MLK basically said, pull up your pants. And all the basketball players pull up their pants and all this stuff. And then all the black people revolt. And the revolution happened because pants were pulled up. I really (laughs) want to know if that was the joke. It's got to be. It was so heavy-handed. So heavy-handed. There's a lot. If you watch the Boondocks and you have watched Aaron Magruder's interviews, there's a lot of respectability kind of aggressive stuff in there. You really think that it that that's what it was about? Kind of like oh, yeah. you oh, Negroes. Yeah. I mean, the the when Martin Luther King can't get into his own party, that was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> when getting in with them shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I I just I wanna know. There was also stuff that wasn't respect like dude, his whole take on hip hop. Watching modern hip hop and look at when we read those news headlines, that's an episode of the Boondocks. Yeah, yeah. Whose mom says she was the throat goat? Um, FBD Duck. Don't know what any of that means. These are all rap names because this is a real thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, sixth grade. He's from Chicago. I, I learn all the names and like. Oh yes. I'm, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I'm still like I'm into Chief Keef and like ten, he's he was he, he hit you know the scene ten years ago. Like I, the kids are yeah. telling me about these names and I'm like I don't know these people. <laughs> it's not even you could be Chicago, you could be you know into anyway. hip hop, but once you're old, you're old. Yeah, and I, I'm not. Oh. You know what? I'm not supposed to know those names, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. You tell me you don't know Dirk. I know Dirk, oh. I know who, who he is, but yeah, I couldn't play. <laughs> Lil Dirk. Lil Dirk. Lil Dirk. Everyone's Lil something. What is Lil? His they father all... is Big Dirk. Who he is, is his father after. a rapper? No, he used to be. A, he used to work for like Larry Hoover or some shit. Come really? Oh, Everybody's dad used to be a drug dealer. My dad was the biggest drug dealer in this hood. What are you talking about? My mama house. One funny thing about being like Jewish and from Chicago is like we all have a story about one of our uncles or great uncles being one of Al Capone's um, uh, either lawyers or accountants. In my family, is an accountant. And you grow up thinking that's the coolest story. And then, you know, I didn't grow up around a lot of Jews. But then when I got older, I met some like in college and they're like, no, no, my uncle too. And like, well, I mean, and then we just kind of like, oh, well, I'm sure he had a lot of lawyers and, and attorneys and uh, accountants. But uh, Didn't yeah, that, that's taken down for taxes. What was that? Didn't he get taken oh, down oh, for taxes? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, my uncle must have been a bad accountant. Bad accountants. Forgot to put in your taxes. Forgot to put in your taxes this year. Whoops. At least he wasn't his urologist. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <Al> Capone's urology. <laughs> Kenzo, your great uncle Mort was one of Al Capone's accountants. <laughs> Is that why I'm bad at math, Dad? <laughs> Telling me this shit is fucking hereditary. Oh, 
Tucson, if I do a, a native to, or no, a De La Soul stream, are you going to come with me or are you busy in the morning? Oh, in the morning. I might as well just take tomorrow off. I just want my time. <laughs> Maybe. But what are you considering morning? Oh, that's right. My morning is your afternoon. Um, and you people wake up early too. Jesus Christ. Do we? Do we? Yeah. Yeah. Like 5 a.m. My shit's going off. I'm like, damn, these niggas is up. <laughs> Steve says, yo, we should go watch Tariq Nasheed after this. He's talking about Lori. Oh, man. <laughs> what What do you think Tariq Nasheed? <laughs> JB says, I'm hearing Michael Steam voice telling Capone about his taxes. <laughs> Trying to get Mr. some more Capone. followers, by the way, Kenzo. Thank you. Mr. Capone, do you think we have an accounting problem here? (laughs) (laughs) Count to four. Right. Can you imagine Finkelstein just yelling at Al Capone about his taxes and identity (laughs) politics? (laughs) (laughs) Asking him why everybody's Italian. (laughs) Why is everyone Italian? Oh my God! I'm trying to do a live event with Norm, so cross your fingers that we can get this thing uh, done for April. Nice. It'll, be, it'll be huge. Um, Kenzo, what do you have? What do you have in the in the works before we sign off? What do I have in the works right now? Is just finishing up this school year. Um, I'm actually going back to school next year uh, to get my master's in social work. Um, my plan is to become a therapist, and I found this is a, a very it's probably the quickest route to do that. So I'll be doing that and then getting my licensure exam in about three years. And so career change for me, I uh, taught off and on for 20 years and it's ready to, ready to move on. You're going to get therapy to the gang members. <laughs> <laughs> but only in a Norm Finkelstein voice. <laughs> oh, God. All the chew comes out of him when he's given therapy. They're like financial uh, advice. Old Eddie Murphy Jew in Coming to America at the Barbershop. Look at Leon. <laughs> You're never going to get anywhere in life. <laughs> he still remembers all the lines. <laughs> oh, God. That was Eddie Murphy's. What do you think? Okay, before we go, we have to say this. You guys are going to get a little free champagne. Um, Pascal, someone puts a gun to your head and they say, look, you need to tell me what's a better Eddie Murphy movie. Boomerang or Coming to America. Hammercocks. What's what's better? Oh, man. Boomerang. No time to think. (laughs) (laughs) Coming to America America was was funnier. Kenzo? Oh, coming to America. Oh, okay. Tucson. Coming to America. I'm an asshole. Boomerang. Every year on my birthday. That's because you're an extraordinarily heterosexual man. (laughs) (laughs) That's why. (laughs) You're like a beyond the pale. Of heterosexuality, <laughs> and that—that's why. <laughs> that's a good explanation. 
<laughs> I don't know what she's trying to say about me with that comment. <laughs> because she's been in a frat, she thinks dicks have touched. Oh, Jesus. <sighs> yeah, you were in a frat and I lived in a punk house, so... Yeah. Something, something mildly. It's a, a game of grab ass happened at least once or twice. Oh sure, I mean skateboarders too. So yeah, for oh, sure. Yeah, uh, there's somebody. so much. Yeah, someone's accidentally tugged the chain. Tugged the chain. <laughs> wow. So John, Doctor Claus says, "Coming to America had John Amos in it. It did. It did. But Boomerang had John Witherspoon." Ooh, Who's the better John? Coordinate. Mushroom belt. Halle Berry is in Boomerang. Halle Berry becomes Halle Berry in Boomerang. Not Strictly Business. Nobody, there's like eight black people that remember Strictly Business. It's me and the eight <laughs> black people that were in it. Like no one. <laughs> But guess why kids are just looking all confused. Pascal ain't seen strictly business. I've seen that. Oh, I've seen. I, I could enough. If you if, if you saw Baps, then you understand that scheduling of movie releases is very important. Mm-hmm. Because Halle Berry was coming off of what uh, losing Isaiah. Mm. What was she coming off? She was coming off of a big movie, and then Babs came out. You're like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, no one remembers Strictly Business. See, no one in the in the chat says they remember Strictly Business. Good soundtrack. Strictly Business. All those movies had good soundtracks. Tell me one do. '90s movie with colored folks in it that doesn't have a good soundtrack. It's true. New Jack put, Swing. Put on the Boomerang soundtrack. Boomerang you, soundtrack. That's Tony Braxton's first single. That's right. Love should have brought your ass home last night. She meant it. Boom, and she just pushes his head too. <laughs> Love should have brought your ass home last night. The, the way the movie ends when the woman walks by and Halle Berry goes, if you even turn your head. <laughs> Born Center says Kenzo got more than one black friend if he watched back. (laughs) (laughs) I watched Sister Act 2 an ungodly amount of times because Lauren Hill was in that movie. Jason liked the black woman once. (laughs) Oh, wow. One time. That's what I One time. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, that, that was a really dirty shot. <laughs> wow. See, you hear that, ladies? That's who you have to be for Jason to like you. You have to be Lauren Hill. Good luck with that. Isn't she Haitian? <laughs> no, she's not. No, she's Jamaican. She's American. Oh. She's Jamaican American. She's not Jamaican American. I thought she was Haitian. She got Jamil, man. Pas, no, truth is, Wyclef and and Praz are Haitian. Right. She is not. She is not Haitian. She's not. Steve says Jason got a brown paper bag test. Mm, 
maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Paper bags in his pocket right now. Bags, as long as it's from the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a manila envelope in his pocket. <laughs> She's saying I got a plastic bag from Ranch 99. <laughs> Kenzo's like, what did I get involved in? I just want to be a therapist. Not before. Kenzo's only dates women that are Manny Pacquiao fans. (laughs) Specifically, his politics. Right? (laughs) Oh, that's mean. It's funny, you know, that we are on this subject because I I stumbled on some weird picture of uh, it was a picture of uh, Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier, and they were laughing together. And I saw all of these comments by black women, and they were like, someone said, "Hmm, they must have been plotting on white women, white women together." I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I was like. Oh. All there's like a whole comment thread of women like you know both of them just were chasing white women. It was like they fought in the civil rights movement to chase white women. Chase white women. My sister told me that. My sister told me that. <laughs> I, like, oh I know one so day my little black son can have a beautiful white woman with freckles come to the house. <laughs> I was like, yo, the hatred that was coming towards. Sydney and Harry Belafonte in that thread was just a bit much. I was like, wow. I find the civil rights movement to bang Yep. You'd be surprised how many people say something like that. It's a popular sentiment, yeah. Are you being serious? Oh, there's, yes. a of, there's a whole book that accuses the Black Panther Party about those guys who, you know, fighting power so they can get white women. What? Eldridge Cleaver gave up the ghost. Yeah. Black, Macho, Black, Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman makes that allegation. So, yeah. when we gonna get a freedom? <laughs> <laughs> Where the white women at? <laughs> in the house, looking fine as hell, with a pantaloons on. <laughs> pantaloons. If she walked by that window one more time, <laughs> I refuse to believe that that was even in the back of Harry Belafonte's mind. Spoken but if it was, like a black man. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you guys, all of a sudden, you guys are so innocent. Oh, no. They were talking about petunias. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Wow, wow, wow. Interesting. <laughs> Why can't they be talking about anything else? Yeah. I, I can see Jim Brown trying to get you. I can see Jim Brown doing that. Jim Brown? You may know me as Jim Brown from the gridiron, but I'm also Jim Brown from the civil rights movement. Jim Brown. I'm also like Jim Brown from the bedroom. Jim Brown, like Jim Brown, Raquel Wells is like. You may know me from the man movie. What was the movie he was in? Like called like Nigger Charles or something. Oh gosh. What was that movie called? I'm not making this up. He's in this movie. It's called like Nigger something. I don't know, man. 
Can you look at Tucson before we go? Can you find that on the IMDb? I'm not making this up. Not getting monetized. We know that for sure. (laughs) He also said the C word like times. Once he said that, it's like, oh yeah, we lost this episode. He been off. He been off. Life with big dick isn't helping either. (laughs) You You could have said Lori Lightfoot whipped her dick out and spun it around (laughs) and sang "It's Raining Men." And that would have Yikes. been better than saying the C word. Yikes. Oh my God, man. What was it? What, Tucson, can you find the movie? Do you see it? I'm looking. I mean, I so far, it's, IMDb it's is like Jason is alive. So let's see. <laughs> I know he was in a movie called Mandingo. Jim Brown was not in Mandingo. That was Ken Norton who was in Mandingo. That was Ken Norton in Mandingo. You sure that wasn't Jim Brown? Not Jim Brown. Was Ken Norton in the nigger movie? It's a hard oh R. God, Jason, man. What you in the N-word, dude? <laughs> it's a hard R. Tucson, are you looking up who was in nigger? I'm looking. And, and every black person shows pictures of me and Pascal. <laughs> Not seeing The Legend it. of N-Word Charlie. Okay. I'm telling you. Was it Jim Brown? Oh, hang on, hang on. I can hear them fingers typing. You go, girl. Black girl magic. <laughs> oh, God. No, it was, uh, hold on. Fred Williamson. Fred was Williamson. I knew it was the football playing Negro. Fred it's the Hammer. Charlie Rose. with a Y. And it's the it's N word, Charlie, right? Roger Ebert gave. Yeah. Yeah, the legend, of, uh, the legend of Nigga Charlie. Yeah, that was a movie. I remember this movie. <laughs> Why do you remember it? Black exploitation. I'm kind of a black exploitation aficionado. You never saw Fly by Night, and that is the greatest black exploitation movie ever. Before we go, I saw I'm Fly with, by Night. Before we go, I got to tell this story, Kenzo. I'm with Kenzo in LA. We're talking. We're talking, right? And I'm like, dude, whatever you do. If you're still awake right now, you go in your hotel if your son's asleep and you watch this movie. I've had to watch it twice because I didn't think it was real. It's <laughs> and I get a message from Kenzo. I'm watching it and you're this is insane. <laughs> <laughs> the Zionist scene in Fly by Night. It was even wilder than you explained it. Literally made no sense. Came out of absolutely nowhere. This nowhere. record executive guy just ranting about the virtues of Zionism during <laughs> well, negotiating a contract with a rapper. Like, yes, <laughs> who would ever do that? I don't really you care for you know. people and your politics, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's great politics? Zionism. <laughs> Steve says Jason's ancestors were on the Mayflower. He dropped that hard R with E. <laughs> Look at that. <sighs> Jason with the hard Dribble R. Dribble Martin is in that movie. And it's called The Legend of N-Word Charlie. Roger Ebert gave it two stars. Word? Yep. Can you imagine the Roger Ebert review that he was doing with Gene Siskel talking about N-Word Charlie? I'm still. Oh, it can send it to you. 
I'm still recovering from the fact that M2 Sump believes that civil rights movement was thought so brothers can get white women. <laughs> I'm not saying I believe that. I'm saying I was told that. Who told that to you? An angry My black sister. woman? My sister told me that. Angry. She wasn't even old enough to be there. <laughs> she wasn't. No, she wasn't. But she did tell me that uh, you got to watch these dudes. <laughs> gotta watch these fools hey, hey thank you mdr we appreciate that the show did get demonetized uh hg says tir needs an n-word jar yes this is true maybe that needs to be a sound effect every time you see it like a Just change going into a jar <laughs> yeah well we haven't done this in a while we're coming for you nigga. Woo! <laughs> jesus Kenzo's like, I'm really happy for you, man. <laughs> as long as you're happy, I'm happy, man. And and also before we go, Kenzo, um, what Slayer shirt is that? Oh, Rain and Blood. Let me see. Oh, the album cover. Oh, that's a good man. Classics. That's a good man. A slide whistle sound for the N-word. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> Maybe we should get a what should what could be a good code word? What for what? For in because we changed we changed uh what did we call uh the chosen people? Half a Kenzo. Oh European Haitian European Haitian European <laughs> so Haitian Europeans and what for the N-words, what can we say? Yo, man, I don't even know, man. <laughs> we gotta think about that. We gotta think about that. Well, okay, when we do this stream tomorrow, and and you know, I'm not asking anyone to join me. If you don't want to join Pascal, I understand we do a movie night tomorrow. We're gonna be running late. Um, I'm gonna play music until they it until they cut it off and i don't think they'll cut it off but they definitely will demonetize it like they do the champagne room streams mm-hmm. so just letting you know that this will be a i just i want to do it i'm excited these these songs are finally going to be available you know we were um we were talking to daniel mate last uh, friday about uh, De La Soul is dead and he was like yeah you can't find it anywhere they took it down on YouTube I was like I found it and the link I sent him right after I sent it to him someone took that link down yeah so it's like having this stuff because <clears throat> nobody's buying music anymore let's just be honest because even if you bought it how are you going to play it <clears throat> so I mean it's not it's not the best deal my brother's phone's just broken he's like I lost all my music it's not, it's the, in the, it's cloud. not the best deal. It's in the cloud. Allegedly. Allegedly in the cloud. Well, you got to have your password. Born Center says Pascal can't take Jason anywhere. I think we need to get a sound effect for N word so we can just, you know. <laughs> not say it. It's yeah. going to be mostly for you. Or something like that. <laughs> I just want to say two things, Kenzo. We have, we have got, we've doubled your followers. Ooh, I want you to you. I want you to know that we're still working on it. Also, I want everyone to hit like. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please give us five stars wherever you're listening. 
really helps us out. Thank you very much. Um, we changed the show back category wise and we're moving back up in the category that we were in originally. And we will be in the top 20. I'll screenshot it for you. Awesome. We'll still be broke, but let me know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> broke without. Shit. You may know me from. <laughs> <laughs> Being broke with clout. <laughs> that's the new rich is broke with clout. That's you know. That's what's up. That's, that's uh inward rich, I believe that's called. Mm-hmm. Just can't avoid them. Can you? Just can't. <laughs> you may flower ass. <laughs> <laughs> But I was right about the movie. There's a movie with the N-word in it. <laughs> and and Gene Siskel or Roger Ebert? Roger Ebert gave it two th- stars. Roger Ebert. Oh, somebody bought us pizza. <gasps> Thank you, Charles. Thank Charles, you, Charles. Thank you so much. Well, thank you guys. Movie night tomorrow night. We'll be watching uh, actually a really good movie, Deep Cover. Um, yes, yes, y'all. Mm-hmm. But before we go, what's your favorite part of Deep Cover, Pasco? <clears throat> My favorite part of Deep Cover is when uh, Lawrence Fishburne is sitting down and he's getting broken down about the how the the drug business works. And Jeff Gold, Jeff Goldblum is like, yes, the laundress matters. The laundress matters. All <laughs> 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 oh, right. So it's going to be fun, 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 fun night, movie night. If you want to watch the movie with us, there's only one way. Patreon.com slash Bitter Lake presents Kenzo Shibata. Thank you so much. There is a link to Kenzo's Twitter. Please follow him um i'm gonna tag you again on this uh tournament march radness tournament (laughs) i'm sure you have a lot to say on this uh brother shibata thank you prairie fire kowalski all right thanks y'all for having me on all right thank you guys and we are out. out